0: Amen. And now here, words of encouragement from the Lord Jesus Christ. Revelation 3, verses 7 through 13. And to the messenger of the church in Philadelphia, write, These things says the holy, the true, he who has the key of David, who opens, and no one except he who opens can shut it, and then no one can open. I know your works. Look, I have set before you an open door that no one is able to shut because you have a little strength and have kept my word and have not denied my name. See, I am determining that some of the synagogue of Satan, those who claim to be Jews and are not but are lying, yes, I will cause them to come and do obeisance at your feet and they will know that I have loved you because you have kept my command to endure. I also will keep you from the hour of testing that is about to come upon the whole inhabited earth to test those who dwell on the earth. I am coming swiftly. Hold fast what you have so that no one may take your crown. The one who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will never again go out. And I will write on him the name of my God, the name of my God's city, the new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Amen. Father, we thank you for this, your word. We're so grateful that we have the ability to have Bibles, to study them, to be transformed by them. And we pray that we this morning would be transformed by your word of truth sanctify us by your spirit we pray in Jesus name Amen. Amen. you may be seated well it's always nice to come to a portion of scripture that is pure encouragement Uh, we need that once in a while don't we and it's not as if the previous letters didn't have encouragement they did but it's only the letters to Smyrna and Philadelphia that are absent of any rebuke and any uh, correction and the church of Philadelphia receives the highest praise of any of the churches. And I think that's significant because this really was a struggling work. It was not a mega church, did not have a lot of resources and people in it, it was not famous or popular. In fact, uh, the church had been receiving a lot of bad press from the Jews. It's not a church that would have probably received a lot of notice on Twitter, uh, probably would not have had a big write-up in Christianity today. And after watching decades of Christians and their accolades for immature musicians and immature megachurch preachers Uh, I have come to the conclusion that Christians really don't know what they should be accolading. Uh, We need to imitate Jesus and accolade churches like this church, even though it was obscure, it was a faithful church. I think we tend to accolade that which is famous and eloquent and popular and big, and that's not the heart of Christ Jesus. Uh, He's looking deeper than that at at the heart there's another big background item that's important to understand and that is that all of the churches were really receiving a lot of bad press at this time but especially the churches that lived in cities that were devoted to Caesar worship that were very very loyal uh, to Caesar and jealous uh, for his name uh... christianity was constantly being slandered both the jews and the romans called them cannibals accused them of engaging in incest, eating their children, worshiping the severed head of a donkey. I have no idea where that one came from, but that was a very common accusation from the first through the uh, third centuries. And it got so bad that even the relatives, the unbelieving relatives of Christians shunned them, didn't want to have anything to do with them and if people were really believing this idea that they engaged in incest and cannibalism you can understand how nobody would want to have anything to do with Christians the records that we have show that many people refused to sell to Christians boycotted their businesses so there was a lot to be discouraged over Rome had recently made Christianity an illegal religion uh, throughout the the Empire And to make matters worse, the fire that had burned down Rome a little less than two years before was being blamed on the Christians. Uh, Apparently, uh, from Tacitus and Suetonius and some of the other uh, Roman historians, it appears that Nero had actually lit those fires, for what reason, we don't know and then when uh the uh, pressure began to mount against him uh, the jewish advisors to nero uh, encouraged him to pin the blame on the christians and so this rumor was disseminated uh, throughout the empire and rather effectively uh, uh, had um, turned people against christians so on a human level it was embarrassing to become a christian when tacitus describes the aftermath of Rome being burned to the ground, he accused Christians of engaging in, quote, the most degraded and shameful practices. So that's a little bit of the background uh, to this letter that Jesus is giving. And Jesus gives encouragement after encouragement to this struggling church. And the first thing that Jesus does is to take their eyes off of themselves and off of their own situation and to put their eyes upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And actually, this is the solution that Jesus gave to every one of the churches, no matter what struggles that they were going through. A God centered and a God focused Christianity will help you through your troubles, whereas a man centered Christianity is only going to seem like it's helping you when everything's going well but it'll let you down when times get tough and where do we learn about God we learn about God through the scriptures so verse 7 gives us an inspired epistle to them and then in verse 13 he reminds them hey I want you to listen to all of the letters that I've sent to all of the churches so we start and we end with scripture and the promises of scripture are the only solution that you can have for deep, deep discouragement and depression. How many here have read uh, John Bunyan's or Paul Bunyan? John Bunyan's uh, (laughs) allegory. Yeah, the other guy, he's chopped down trees, right? Um, The allegory, Pilgrim's Progress. How many have read that? Okay, good chunk of you have. That is a fantastic, entertaining story for children but teaching them theology and practical theology at the same time. Well, anyway, in one part of this story, Christian and Hopeful have wandered off of the road. They wanted to take an easy path, and the uh, giant despair catches them, gives them a good beating, throws them into the dungeon of his... Uh, of his doubting castle and they lay there from wednesday through saturday evening without food without water without light and then he and his wife gave them a rope a knife and poison you can have your choice you know of committing suicide and it says that they were sorely tempted to do so but they resisted that temptation knowing that the law of god forbade suicide So even the law of God was a help, it didn't take them out of their despondency and out of their despair, but it was a help to prevent them from doing something wrong as a result of their discouragement. But it was the promises found in the Bible that got them out of their despair. And that story is so true to life. How many times do we uh, go day after day being discouraged, without going to the scriptures. we do just like Christian and hopeful. And uh, we really need to be more like David who as soon as he found himself despairing and being discouraged would rebuke himself and say, cut it out in effect. Why are you so cast down, O my soul? And he would go to the scriptures uh, to get him uh, out of uh, his depression. And that's eventually what happened to Christian and hopeful. Bunyan wrote, On Saturday, about midnight, they began to pray and continued in prayer till almost break of day. Now, a little before it was day, good Christian, as one half amazed, broke out in passionate speech. What a fool, quoth he, am I, thus to lie in a stinking dungeon, when I may as well walk at liberty. I have a key in my bosom called promise." That I will, that will, I am persuaded, open any lock in Doubting Castle. Then said Hopeful, That's good news. Good brother, pluck it out of thy bosom and try. Then Christian pulled it out of his bosom and began to try at the dungeon door, whose bolt, as he turned the key, gave back, and the door flew open with ease, and Christian and Hopeful both came out. Then he went to the outward door that leads into the castle yard, and with his key opened that door also after he went to the iron gate, for that must be open too, but that lock went damnable hard, yet the key did open it. Then they thrust open the gate to make their escape with speed, but that gate as it opened made such a creaking that it waked giant despair who hastily rising to pursue his prisoners felt his limbs to fail for his fits took him again so that he could by no means go after them then they went on and came to the king's highway again and so were safe because they were out of his jurisdiction now you can read the whole story in modern english i prefer the the older english that it was written in but bunyan is basically saying we have got to memorize we've got to know the promises of scripture Uh, so that we can deal with discouragement the moment that it comes upon us and get us out of the dungeon of despair. And this little portion of Scripture is, I think, a portion that you can go back to over and over again to find comfort. So let's go through it. He starts by saying, These things says the Holy, or as some translate it, the Holy One. Now, why would that be encouraging? Why would it not be discouraging when you know you're sinful to go to the one who is so holy it makes you look terrible, absolutely terrible by comparison? Wouldn't that make matters worse? Uh, And if you were accused of sins you hadn't committed, such as cannibalism and incest, how would coming to the Holy One bring comfort? And if the world was shunning you, why would it bring comfort to come to one who is so different from you? far more holy than you are well think about it this way those jews and those romans who were making these despicable accusations against them uh, had their own sins to answer for now they may have thought of themselves as being much better than the christians you know much holier uh, than the christians and yet they had a lot of sins themselves, and yet here is one who has absolutely no sin, and yet he's willing to embrace them and to love them. This means that their security in Jesus is not based on the degree of holiness that they have achieved, and so if your own sins or your purported sins are what is discouraging you, I would encourage you to meditate upon your justification. You could be a thousand times better than you are and you're still going to need to be justified to approach God's throne and you could be a thousand times worse than you think that you are and your justification is no more or no less secure and what we need to to realize is that our security comes from Jesus not from the degree of holiness that we have achieved. So when people shun you because of your sin, realize that the Holy One is on your side. The only Holy One is on your side. Uh, When they accuse you falsely of sin issues, realize that, hey, if these people knew the secret thoughts that I have and the depths of depravity in my heart, they'd have a lot worse things to say about me than they currently are slandering me uh, for. The only remedy that I think I know of to deal with the shame of being falsely accused concerning your character is to remind yourself that the Holy One knows you're a whole lot worse than you are, and yet you are loved in the Beloved. You are accepted in Jesus. It means a lot when you realize that this letter comes not just from a fellow sinner, it comes from the Holy One, the Lord Jesus Christ. Next, when people slander you and lie about you in other ways, realize the only one who is was 100% true is on your side. And it's his opinion that counts for eternity, not man's opinion. Man's opinion can let you down. Uh, but the encouraging statements he's about to bring come from the holy, the true. He knows me better than anyone, and yet I'm still secure in him. Next, when governments persecute you, Realize that the one who has the key of David is on your side. Verse 7 says of Jesus, He who has the key of David, who opens, and no one except he who opens can shut it, and then no one can open. It's an awkward translation, but it is a marvelous truth. Uh, First of all, what does it mean to have the key of David? Well, uh, uh, verse 7 is a quotation from Isaiah 22, verse 22, where Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, is about to become the prime minister of Israel. Uh, God did not. He despised Shebna, the current prime minister, and he said he's going to blast him out of office. He's going to put Hilkiah uh, into office as the prime minister. Now, prime minister back then had a lot more power than prime ministers today have nobody could approach the king except through the prime minister and he had authority over everything and so hilkiah makes a marvelous type or a picture of the lord jesus christ who has all authority in heaven and on earth except for the father the father is over the lord jesus christ now this is as clear a statement i think as you can get that jesus has all sovereignty now why would that be a comfort Well, it would be a comfort to those who have eyes of faith uh, because if you're only looking at life through the eyes of flesh, it sure does not look like Jesus is in control. It looks the exact opposite. It looks like Christianity is about to be annihilated. Uh, They're going through the Great Tribulation and things are about to get a whole lot uh, worse. And so it looked like Satan was in charge. But, you know, as you go through the book and the book unfolds, you begin to realize, you know, this Satan's on a leash. Here I thought Satan was pretty powerful, but he's on a leash. He cannot do a single thing without Jesus's permission. He cannot make one step without Jesus allowing him to do so. So Jesus is the one who raises up empires. He's the one who casts them down. He's the one who's in control of everything, including the judgments that come in this book that make the world seem so topsy-turvy. He has all authority, except for the father being above him, and nobody can approach the father except through uh, the son. But here's the cool part. In Isaiah 22, God gave Eliakim the key of David so that he could open and close doors, and it gave comfort to Eliakim concerning his opportunities for ministry. But this passage shows that Jesus is giving those opportunities for who? For his people. Okay, so Jesus gives these saints access to the kingdom realities. These saints share in the new Eliakim, in other words, Jesus. They share in his authority over the nations and over the peoples. And so just as the previous chapter had given the rod of iron that Jesus wields into the hands of overcomers, this chapter is giving the authority over governments, and these open doors and closed doors into the hands of believers. And both the open doors and the closed doors are um, blessed by God. And so a further application is that when opportunities for ministry are closed off to you because of the sinful actions of others, you just need to remind yourself, you know what? This door is ultimately only opened and closed because Jesus Christ wants it opened and closed. And every opening and every closing is for my good and for his glory. And so the one who opens and closes doors, he's the one who was on my side. Now, the first phrase of verse 8 says, I know your works. Now, compared to the works that the other churches had engaged in, you know, the works of Philadelphia probably seemed rather insignificant and yet Jesus knows those works. You may not be noticed in terms of the works that you do. You know, you're scrubbing the kitchen and changing the diapers, and there's all kinds of things you're involved in, but Jesus notices. He he notices everything that you are involved in. Now, you also may feel guilty because you cannot live up to the expectations that other people have of you, and yet you need to realize I'm doing this ultimately for God, not for that other person whose expectations I will never be able to fulfill anyway. Jesus knows exactly what I have done, and that may mean genuine guilt because um, we are supposed to be accountable to uh, him for, as stewards of our time and of our talents, but it really it is a liberating concept to realize that everything we do, we do as unto the Lord Jesus Christ. And knowing those six things about Jesus I think can help us have a sense of belonging and worth. Now I used to get my sense of belonging and worth from other people's thoughts of me. And that's what drove me to be such a workaholic. And even as a workaholic I still couldn't meet the expectations that people had of me. And it wasn't until I recognized, you know, this sense within us that we need approval, and I think everybody needs approval, was given to Adam and Eve because they needed whose approval? God's approval, right? What happened in the fall is that this sense of wanting God's approval got twisted into idolatry in wanting man's approval. And when you realize this reversal, and you begin to reverse that back by God's grace, it is incredibly liberating to say, I know people think that I'm not doing a great job here, but I'm doing this for the Lord. I'm doing it as unto Him. And um, Christ's yoke is easy, His burden is light, is what He said. Now, He has burdens that He gives us to bear, but His expectations of us are a lot easier, a lot lighter than the expectations of others. And if you're as driven as I tend to be, Christ's expectations, his burdens on you are much lighter probably than your own expectations and drivenness for yourself. So that first Roman numeral point, I think is a necessary balance to the holy discontentment that we looked at last week. Last week we saw it is important that we have a holy discontentment with the state of the world and the state of our own soul. We keep pressing upward But that's gotta be balanced with this sense that we are secure in Christ at any stage in our upward journey, at any stage. It's not based upon how well we do, but how good Christ is. And uh, Christ really does not expect more of us than what he has prepared us to do. Okay, Uh, Roman numeral two shows the various ways in which Christ delights in helping us to overcome impossibilities. I think that's one of the reasons we tend to get discouraged is because we are face-to-face with impossibilities, and Jesus is going to show us, hey, there isn't anything impossible for us if Christ is doing this ministry through us. So, focusing now upon the future, uh, Jesus was telling these people who saw nothing but closed doors in front of them, look, I have set before you an open door that no one is able to shut. In effect, Jesus is parting the Red Sea. He is opening doors which previously looked like they were absolutely impossible to open up. And so we don't know what the open doors of ministry were, whether it was just what he's going to be talking about in terms of uh, Jewish evangelism or their other open doors. But we do know he did not open those doors because they were famous or rich. Uh, or had a lot of cloud or connections or any of the other things that we tend to think, I wish I had this, then I would be able to do more ministry. No, he, he opened those doors because he is the Lord of impossibilities. And this promise, I think, would have been very, very encouraging. Now, what's even more remarkable about this promised access is that it was promised precisely because they recognized their weakness. I want you to notice the word because in verse 8, the reason this amazing door was opened up that no one could shut, he said, is because you have a little strength. Because you have a little strength. Now, you can cross out the little word ah uh, there. It's just basically saying because you're not strong. <laughs> you don't have much strength. They recognize they did not have much strength but it was precisely their recognition of their lack of strength that made them cling to Jesus all the more tightly and when, uh, here, here's the problem when we tend to think we are strong that's when we tend to think we don't need Jesus or we neglect looking to him and the, the application I think is obvious God uses you just as you are with all of your weaknesses now it's true that he does change us uh, in the process of using you and it's also true that constant change is part and parcel of the Christian life. We looked at that last week. But he doesn't wait till you are changed before he starts using you. That's the point. He uses you exactly where you are right now. He used the weakest of all of the seven churches, and he blessed them more than the other churches. Uh, This is sweet encouragement when you think about it. Now, you may not have the problem of living by the expectations of other people. Maybe it's your own expectations that are killing you. Uh, You might think, you know, I could contribute a whole lot more to Christ's kingdom if I could just be a bit better, if I could be more perfect. But think about the people uh, 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 of old. Was David used mightily by God because he was so perfect? Uh Uh-uh. Was Moses used mightily by God because he was so perfect? No way. In fact, Moses sensed his inadequacies so much, he was terrified. He came up with every excuse in the book as to why he did not need to serve. He was inadequate, and yet God used him. Why? Because he clung to God's grace. He knew he could only do it by God's grace. Think of the little maid in Syria, a little slave girl. Was she used by God to turn that empire upside down through a little testimony that she gave to Naaman's wife, her mistress? Uh, No, it wasn't because she was so good. It was because she saw God as being so good. If he only would go to the God of Israel, he could be cured of his slavery. You look at Hebrews chapter 11. And you will see people whose lives were sometimes messed up and yet God used them because they lived by faith. You look at some of the people in the genealogy of Jesus, wow, some pretty sorry characters and yet Christ identified with them. He used them. The church that Christ singled out to give the most praise to was not a Willow Creek megachurch. It was a church that was struggling, but it was faithful. So are you weak and struggling? Well, then you happen to be a perfect candidate for God's grace to be working through you because he says in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 26 through 31, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty and the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are that no flesh should glory in his sight. God delights in making his power manifested through your weakness. Can you see why I, I titled this Sweet Encouragement? He is giving one encouragement after another. And I do want you to notice that the because is not just followed by the phrase little strength, but also by a description of faithfulness. It says, and have kept my word and have not denied my name. We call that faithfulness. Faithfulness does not depend upon how smart you are, how many resources you have, how healthy you are, how fast you work. No, faithfulness depends upon how much you hold on to Jesus and are willing to follow his word by faith, trusting him. Christ told Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9. So let's do some contrast here. Philadelphia is praised and given all kinds of grace and blessing because of their weakness. Laodicea is the opposite. We're gonna look at Laodicea next week. They failed because they failed to recognize their weakness. They thought they were strong. Jesus said, you're weak. You really are weak, you're just not recognizing it. And ironically, it's the one who recognizes his weakness that without Christ, we can do nothing who finds strength from Christ for the battle. So these were just ordinary Christians like you and I are. Just ordinary Christians. Yet they had learned that principle of grace very, very well. When we recognize, without Christ I can do nothing, but I'm clinging to Christ and I'm going to believe Him to do impossible things through me, that's when the impossible gets accomplished. Now verse 9 gives yet another impossibility that Jesus promised to do through the church. And this one, I think, would have been an astonishing promise uh, to them. He says, see, I'm determining that some of the synagogue of Satan, those who claim to be Jews and are not, but are lying, yes, I will cause them to come and do obeisance at your feet, and they will know that I have loved you. This is amazing, because up until this point, the Jews were their chief persecutors. The Romans had recently joined in on the persecution, but it's like the Jews had a demonic veil upon their minds that kept them from being able to see the truth. And their opposition to Christianity was sometimes incredibly fierce. And yet we know from scripture that if Jesus determines to save a Jew or anybody else for that matter, he's gonna be saved. Now there are several encouraging implications in this verse that I wanna quickly uncover. And the first is that this is an answer to the claim that some people have been making that Jews can never be saved. They base their false teaching on a misunderstanding of 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 16, which describes the Jews as, quote, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they may be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins but wrath has come upon them to the uttermost." Now, since uttermost is the Greek word telos, usually refers to the end, Wanamaker says, uh, quote, it is better to interpret ace telos to mean that divine wrath will rest upon those unbelieving and disobedient Jews until the end of the age comes when Christ will return. And I say, well, that begs the question, does the age end in 70 A.D. or does it end at the end of history? I think it ends in 70 A.D. And I, I've given quite a number of proofs in my introductory sermons, but there is another proof, and that is that Romans predicts that Israel as a nation is going to uh, be, be saved. And there are other scriptures that predict the same thing. Now, many people disagree with that. Uh, Lenski, for example, says, the Jews as a mass have been petrified and shall remain so until the last day. So they say national conversion of Israel, impossible. It'll never happen, can never happen. And some commentators go even further and they say no Jew ever will be saved. But what does Jesus say here? Jesus guarantees that he will bring some of these first century Jews out of a synagogue of Satan and into the church and Revelation 7, says the same thing. Other passages in Revelation say the same thing. Later non-biblical history tells us exactly the same thing. Uh, One commentator said, quote, there is evidence from later writings that there were many Jewish converts in this church through the power of the gospel. The Church of Philadelphia was a church that was just loaded with converted Jews. And this conversion uh, process of a remnant um, of Jews has continued down through history to this present day. And I think it highlights the beauty of God's mercy and of his grace. Now, a second implication is that Jesus is able to take even the darkest veil and the worst demonic blindness away from individuals. Uh, Speaking of the first century Jews, Paul said, but their minds were blinded. For until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away in Christ. 2 Corinthians 3.14, and I'm emphasizing that last phrase, the veil is taken away in Christ. Christ can take away the veil, right? Uh, When you see a person who is spiritually blind, they just do not give it. What we need to do is pray to the one who can open up blind eyes. And this book clearly identified the first century Jews as being totally blinded by Satan, unable to believe. Now later on in the book we're going to see God brings judgments upon the Jews and gives them opportunity to repent, they will not repent. He gives more judgments upon the Jews, gives them opportunities to repent, they still will not uh, repent. And yet Jesus, if he determines to save anybody, doesn't matter how hardened that person is, going, is presently, he will be saved. And I think Saul of Tarsus is a key, uh, key uh, example of that. Blinded, utterly blinded, in a rage against Christianity, killing them, imprisoning them, doing everything he can to stamp out Christianity, and in a moment, Jesus converts them into a dedicated uh, apostle. And so if you have prayed for years and years and years for somebody to be saved and they're still not saved, I say, don't get discouraged. Do not give up. Uh, Remember the story of um, uh, George Mueller, uh, who, you know, he's the guy who prays and it seems like God answers all of his prayers. And here he goes decade after decade praying for one individual whom God had put upon his heart to pray for and he never gave up praying and people said, You know, God's not gonna enter this prayer, obviously. You've been praying for, what, 30 plus years. He kept on praying until finally God uh, changed that guy, that guy's heart in his old age. Third implication comes from the phrase, the synagogue of Satan. And that is that Satan does not just promote atheism. He does promote atheism. I think he loves atheism, but don't think that he's against people worshiping. He loves to gather people together, which is what synagogue means, to gather people together for false worship. Religion itself can blind people to the need of God, which is exactly what's going on with modern uh, Judaism. The reason spiritual warfare is needed when witnessing to religious Jews is because Satan is doing his utmost to keep them from believing. Uh, When Jesus gave the parable of the sower and the seed, He mentioned seed that landed on the hard pathway and the birds were eating it. And then he explains what that means. He talks about demons taking that that word out under Satan. Those by the wayside, he says, are the ones who hear. Then the devil comes and takes away the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. So anyone who is under demonic deception He's got demons working in his life. We need spiritual warfare to break through that veil uh, and uh, uh, remove it, so that they can understand and be saved. Now, the fourth implication is that first-century Jews that persecuted Christians were not true Jews, because a true Jew is a believer in the one true God and in the Scriptures, and they had rejected the the, the Christ of the Old Testament as well as many of the other portions of the Old Testament in favor, Jesus said, of their man-made traditions. Now this may seem like harsh language that is being used, but what Jesus is doing is he's trying to shake them into an awareness of how dangerous their unbelief really is. And it's very similar to the apologetic that I give uh, to Roman Catholics. Uh, I tell these Roman Catholics, look, I don't think you are a Catholic at all because you have abandoned the Catholic doctrines of the first 10 centuries the Protestant Reformation they're the true Catholics they're the ones who are taking things back to the interpretations uh, that the original I'm the one who's the real Catholic or it's the same apologetic I use with the eastern orthodoxy and I tell them you know you ought to quit calling yourself orthodox just call yourself Greek because I'm the true orthodox You've abandoned the orthodox faith of the first 10 centuries. This is the same apologetic I use with evangelical Lutherans. I've only done it a couple of times, but uh, I've told them, you know what? You ought to change your name because you are not evangelicals, not at all, not even remotely because uh, you're liberals and it was the reformation that coined the name evangelical to mean those who held the five solas. Now my point in bringing this up is that Revelation is not being a racist document when it uses language like this. You got a lot of liberal commentaries out there say, Revelation's an unbelievably racist document. Look what they say about the Jews. No, it's not racist at all. It is using an apologetic tool to get Jews to go back to their true roots. And the very fact that this book speaks of a massive conversion of Jews in chapter seven, speaks of the nation of Israel being converted in the future should destroy the idea that this book is an anti-Semitic book. It is not. Jesus was a Semite who saved a massive number of Semites, continues to save Semites, and will one day save an entire Semite nation uh, in the future. Amen? Okay, so he's, this is not anti-Semitic. So even though Jews can be called Jews in one sense of the term, Jesus is using this language as an apologetic tool, much like I tell Roman Catholics that they're really not Catholic, that they've denied the Catholic faith. Their claim to Catholicism is blasphemy and is untrue. In fact, speaking of racism, Jesus was implying that those first century Jews were the true racists. Okay? Amazingly, Jesus determined to save a bunch of racist stiff-necked Jews before 70 AD, 144,000 to be precise. And here he says that those Jews who had been trying to kill Christians are going to come down. They're going to bow before you, be apologetic, ask for your forgiveness and acknowledge that Jesus is who he says he is and that, that uh, he really does love the church. So to me, this shows that Jesus can handle even the impossible situations of conversion. Praise God. I mean, there's lots of sweet encouragement here. here comes yet another impossible thing that Jesus plans to do. He plans to spare the church from the one and a half years of worldwide death and suffering that would start in less than two years. Now, we've already looked in the introductory sermons at... This uh, massive starvation, death by riots, death by civil wars, death by Roman wars, that would happen starting in June of 68 AD, when the moment Nero dies, Uh, that's when it would start. But amazingly, Philadelphia would get through that period of time unscathed by it all. Okay, it's a little pocket of safety that the Lord has put them into. He's going to put an end to their experience of the great tribulation much earlier than the rest of the church had an end to it. And he's going to spare them over the next two years. Can Jesus handle impossibilities? (laughs) Yes, he can. He can handle the impossibilities of providence and impossibilities of demonic blindness, impossibilities of salvation, impossibilities of protecting you from massive danger this is the jesus we serve amen Amen. he he cares for us he loves us and it praises him i think one of the best ways you can praise the lord is to live by faith rather than by discouragement the reason it praises him is because when you refuse to get discouraged you're saying no i believe god's promises that's faith right that's why it pleases him but there's even more sweet encouragement that jesus gives to this church First, he promises, I'm coming swiftly. Now the word swiftly is better translated as soon. It's the Greek word taku. Translator, by the way, is a dispensationalist and he cannot fathom how 2,000 years later could possibly be soon, so he translates it as swiftly. But look it up anywhere. There is not a single place in Greek literature that I can find where taku means very fast, very sudden. No, it's talking about soon very very soon it's an illegitimate translation to say swiftly and i think this parallels uh, the phrase right in the immediate context that something is about to happen right it's about to so that means that he's obviously not referring to his second coming to the earth with his body but he's referring to his coming in judgment upon israel and rome and that was indeed soon Rome's judgment came in 68 AD, and it was massive. We've looked at that before. Israel's judgment came within a few months, um, starting in 66 AD, lasting till 73 AD throughout the empire, and it was massive. In fact, it was so massive, it makes even the most exaggerated claims of genocide under Hitler of the Jews, and they are exaggerated, but it makes even the most exaggerated claims of genocide pale by comparison to what happened in the first century. In any case, he promised to come soon and he did indeed come soon, within months to deal with the church's persecutors. The Bible is infallible and inerrant. It does not make mistakes. Soon means soon. About to means about to. That would have been a huge comfort to this church. And when we believe the imminency passages of scripture were fulfilled in the first century, It praises God. It praises God because it demonstrates we really do believe His promises. But next, He promises them a crown. Man, we've just got one encouragement after another. Verse 11 continues, Hold fast what you have so that no one may take your crown. Now, first of all, I want you to notice He didn't say, Live up to the expectations that everybody places upon you, and I'm going to give you a crown. Oh, wow, that'd be discouraging. Uh, He didn't say, use the gifts that I've given to other people, or at least use the gifts they wish you had, and I'll give you a crown. He says, hold fast what you have. Uh, Early in my ministry, I used to feel overwhelmed with what the spiritual giants of the past were able to accomplish, and I felt guilty. No matter how hard I tried, I didn't even remotely measure up to them. You know, Calvin preached every day in addition to counseling and writing thousands of letters and writing commentaries in the whole Bible and teaching in seminary and writing the Institute. I couldn't measure up to him or to Beza or to Luther or Spurgeon or any of the other greats that I used to love reading, and I still love reading. In fact, initially, this is what kept me from going into the ministry. I just resisted God's call upon my life because I knew I couldn't do what these guys Did But I came to realize that God has not told me to hold fast what Jonathan Edwards has. He told me to hold fast what Phil Kaiser has, right? Now, some of you may be discouraged because you're comparing yourselves to me or you're comparing yourselves to somebody else in the congregation. Just forget about all that. Okay, that's just going to lead to discouragement. Kathy and I were just talking yesterday morning, Ashley, about this, about the progress that I have made in overcoming this. This is one of my besetting sins, is looking to the expectations of others rather than to the expectations of the Lord. Christ tells you not to worry about your neighbor's abilities or even his expectations. 1 Peter 4.11 says, If anyone serves, let him do it, as with the ability that God supplies. No more, no less. Romans 12, 6 says, Having then gifts, differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. God does not make Christians like we make cookies, you know, with a cookie cutter. Everybody the same. And I tell you, when you once grasp this principle, it is incredibly liberating. I've mentioned discouragement, but let's go to the opposite extreme because I have seen some people go to the opposite extreme of pride and self-satisfaction uh, because uh, they are setting their expectations based on what other people think of them. I, I, and I've particularly seen this with um, so, some of the brightest students who are out there can be some of the laziest students. Why? Because they, can, they don't hardly have to work and they meet their parents' expectations, or their teachers, or whoever it may be. So they just skate through life when they could do so much better. They're not living up to their expectations, they're just meeting the minimum of what their siblings are doing, and it makes them into unbelievably lazy students who will not succeed in life if they don't get past that. And so, here's the point. Jesus really wants you to be your best because you are accountable to him, but he wants you to be your best, not your neighbor's best, your best, because you're not supposed to live in terms of the expectations that other people have of you. Live before the Lord, it's before him that you stand and that you fall. Now, that phrase also indicates that what we do down here on earth will be recognized and rewarded in heaven. And how that works, I don't have the foggiest notion because everything we do down here that's gonna last for eternity is done by grace. It's not us. It's his grace working through us, yet somehow God has chosen when you are willing to work by grace, by faith, accomplish things, God's going to give you increased rewards in heaven. Now, this crown is recognition, but it's also reward. Jesus said that even the giving of a cup of cold water in his name will by no means lose its reward. Can you see why I say this is sweet encouragement? Then comes a wonderful, wonderful promise of intimacy and closeness to God. Verse 12 says, the one who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God and he will never go out again. That's how close he's going to be. And, and, and I, I should point out, just as a side note, read through all of the different uh, Uh, epistles to these seven churches, and you will find this promise of closeness and intimacy with God. To me, this indicates that this is not a tangential issue. This is at the heart of what God expects us to be. He wants us in a, a close fellowship with Him. Jesus had unbelievably close fellowship throughout all of eternity with the Father, and the Scripture says that God has called us into the fellowship of His Son. He wants us to enter into this. So let, let, let's take a look at this, um, this promise. <clears throat> the one who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will never go out again. This is, this is a very meaningful uh, promise of intimacy. To be a temple in the temple of God, to never have to leave that temple day or night means we can always sense God's presence with us. Not only does he never leave us or forsake us, we never have to walk out of his presence. We're always working, sleeping, doing everything in his presence. And notice too, the significance that we can have before God because pillars held up the upper floors of the temple as well as the roof. And so they were key to the, the, the entire structure. So God, the God who needs nothing, has said he's chosen that you are going to be indispensable to his kingdom. You are needed in the body. Every one of you is a needed part of the body. uh, Paul used a different figure, you know, the nose, the ear, all the different things. It's all needed. You belong. That is sweet encouragement to the person who feels cast out and alienated from his friends and neighbors. God says, oh, no, I need you. You're going to be a pillar in my temple. But there's more. Jesus is willing to stake his reputation and the reputation of his entire kingdom upon you that's what verse 12 is saying and I will write on him the name of my God the name of my God's city the new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name have you ever had a relative or a friend you know he's being goofy doing something that's a little bit embarrassing and you're saying I don't know this person Uh, I'm not related to this person Well, God never says that of us in just or in real, okay? He is not embarrassed to have you as part of his family. On the contrary, he identifies his name with us. And actually, to reiterate the previous phrase, he says, I will make you a prominent pillar in my temple. Now, everybody saw those pillars in the temple, so God is saying, look, I'm not going to put you in a corner where nobody can see you, so I won't be embarrassed. No, he puts you front and center He's not embarrassed by you. He wants people to look at you. And then he says, I'll write my name, my father's name, and my city's name on you forever. You're going to be identified with me, and I'm going to be identified with you. You see, we represent Christ, the Father, and the church to the world. It's very important that we not dishonor that name. But the thing that's so encouraging to me is that Christ is willing to identify himself with sinners who are struggling struggling with their sins and overcoming their sins. He's not embarrassed. The only ones that Christ ever said that he would be embarrassed by are those who would be embarrassed by him, who refuse to wear his name on their sleeves. They don't want people knowing they're a Christian. They don't wanna be bringing the word into the public sphere. It's people who are embarrassed of Christ and his word. Those are the ones he's embarrassed by. But you do not have to be perfect to be accepted. You just have to be an overcomer. One who is struggling with sins, one who is slaying his sins, one who is fighting against the, the devil. By the way, I should just point out that this is, uh, in the Greek, is a present active verb. And, and so it means that this person is ongoingly overcoming. Okay, he's in a state of overcoming. Well, that implies he's still fighting sin, Right. An overcomer is not a person who's quit fighting. It's a person who still has sins to overcome, who still has Satan to overcome, who still has the world to overcome. So he's an overcomer. He's in the process. And yes, he might occasionally get licked, but then he gets up and he is slaying these dragons. He is slaying these sins in his life. So you don't have to have made it. You don't have to be perfect to be accepted before the Lord. You just have to be willing to be a fighter, a fighter who wants to overcome. And so it's an incredibly encouraging word. Now the last remedy to discouragement is given in verse 13. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. And I want you to notice he says churches plural, okay? Philadelphia had to listen to the warnings given to Laodicea and the rebukes given to Sardis and the exhortations given to Thyatira, But Philadelphia would not be discouraged by those words. Why? Because Philadelphia is walking hand in hand with the Lord. Is secure in the Lord. You know, if your eyes are fixed on Jesus, you do not need to be discouraged when I'm preaching on the law of God or preaching on the rebukes from, you know, previous letters. Because when I'm pointing the arrows of the, the word of God out here and there's no target inside of you, those arrows are going to go right through. They're not going to hurt you at all. And hey, even if the arrow does stick into something inside of you and you say, okay, Lord, you got me there, what do you do? You just repent and you say, thank you, Lord. Give me a renewed zeal for you. I put that under the blood of Christ and I resolve to keep on keeping on. So there's either way you look at it, there's nothing to be discouraged about. Usually when we are discouraged, it's because we are too focused on the expectations and the, the approval of other people. Perhaps you sense that you're not living up to so-and-so standards, and you're not going to be able to explain to them once again, uh, you know, what, uh, what, what's going on. But if you're looking to Jesus, you realize he already knows, and he cares, and he has promised to help you through your struggle. So you get up with a renewed desire to please him. You don't sit and stew in the fact that you've sinned again. You get up, and you keep on keeping on. So this last lesson is ignore what Satan is saying to you. He's the greater accuser of the brethren. Ignore Satan and listen up to the Spirit. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Satan loves to get you discouraged. By the way, he can use the Scriptures to get you discouraged. He's an expert at using the Scriptures out of context (laughs) to get you discouraged. That's what he did with Jesus. He quoted the Bible out of context. And tried to get Jesus off track, but when he tries to get you discouraged, you need to do exactly the same thing that Jesus did and say, Get behind me, Satan. I am not listening to what you have to say because God's word says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And if Jesus is not going to forsake me, I'm not going to forsake Jesus. Do not allow discouragement to rob you of your Christian joy. If you have sinned, repent, believe. Accept Christ's forgiveness and grace. If you've not sinned, you have no right to be discouraged because of what other people think. It's before the Lord that you stand or fall. And our Lord says in Jeremiah 29, verse 11, I know the thoughts that I have toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. So ignore the devil's discouragements and listen up to the God of all encouragement. Can you say amen? Amen. Father, we come to you this morning so grateful for your grace and your mercies, which are new every morning. And if they're new every morning, we know we need them every morning because we sin every day. And yet we thank you that we are accepted in the beloved. And we, Father, want to commit ourselves to picking up our swords and slaying those dragons, slaying the sins in our lives, to continue the... Upward battle that we looked at last week, uh, knowing that uh, we're not, we have not yet arrived, and yet we want to have the security of the Church of Philadelphia. Knowing that you love us, you care for us, you go into the battle ahead of us, and even when we stumble and fall, you are the God who pours oil into our wounds, who picks us up and helps us to fight again. Help us to be overcomers. Oh God our Father, and may we be people characterized by encouragement uh, because we are characterized by the faithfulness of the Church of Philadelphia. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.